Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me are my co-hosts, Sam, and our friend, Lozzie. This week, we're talking about the 2022 Hugo Awards. This is the second episode in a three-part series about our adventures with the Hugo Award nominees. In this episode, we will discuss the categories of Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form, Lodestar Award for Best Young Adult Book, and Best Novelette. Back to our discussion of the Hugos which is taking longer than I thought, but it's all good stuff. So I'm very, very excited to discuss our next segment, Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form. Now, this is the segment that I always have watched more of every year. Like you said, Lazi, at the beginning of this, like I think just if you're interested in science fiction film and you are seeing new films that are coming out, there's a good chance you've seen a lot of the films on this list. There was only one that I had not seen, and I honestly did not have time to get to. So let's start talking about this category. The first entry on this category, and it's been on the entry on every award show that possibly has to do with film this year, is Dune. Directed by Denis Villeneuve, based on the novel Dune by Frank Herbert. This is Warner Bros., I mean, I don't know what I have to say about Dune that hasn't already been said. I mean, this is also part one of this duology that they're making that are that is based on the singular novel by Frank Herbert. If you like Denny Villeneuve, you know that he makes movies that are very, very pretty and very, very fun to look at. I love this novel. I have Fear is the Mind Killer tattooed on my arm. So there's there's quite a bit of... I was going into this pretty optimistic. I felt like it was a good adaptation. So I went into it worried because I knew it was only adapting the first half and that they hadn't actually confirmed that they were doing a second one. I mean, it seemed likely, but we were all going through a crazy time. Uh, so it, it might not have happened. So I was a bit worried. And I don't really know um, Timothy Chalabinglabong that well. <laughs> so he, uh, and particularly that's tough because that is such a role where you're, you know, you're shouldering the burden of the entire film. Well, certainly the story. Um, I, and I think he was really very, very good. It's very interesting comparing him to Carl McLaughlin from the uh, the David Lynch version. Um, I miss, uh, you know, I'm always happy to see Sting in films because why not <laughs> but you're right that really this is a vibe right this is a, yeah. a Denis Villeneuve vibe uh, much like Blade Runner 2049 which I saw after I saw saw this it builds slowly the tension is ratcheted up drip by drip by drip the soundtrack plays it up you know something bad is gonna come you just know it from the from the opening shot. You know that something bad is going to happen. You don't know when, and I think it's just a joy to watch that happen, and a joy to see the blues and the yellows and the greens and the greys and the dark and the light interact with each other. It's it's a truly great thing to see on a large screen. Sam, what did you think about Dune? Spaceship go work. Sand monsters go burp. Soundtrack go wah. <laughs> that is a fair comment. 
It was fine. I it, we did not have the opportunity to see it on the big screen. Thanks, Saslov. He had nothing to do with that. He put a stake in that going to HBO Max anyway. I don't know when I was going to have an opportunity to rag on Zaslav this week other than this. I don't. It's fine. It should not. It it should not win. You don't ah, think it should win? No, I no, I don't. I mean, part two, maybe we'll talk, but I think there are two, possibly three. I think there are two of these nominees you could just take off wholesale and just say, nope, this ain't your year, kid. Try again. There are another two that I'm kind of mystified as to why they're nominated. And then there are two that I think are legitimately the the ones that should be the ones to beat, one of which I didn't see like you, but this is not that. That's absolutely fair. I agree with you, Lazi, that I I feel like this movie is more of a vibe. I love that. it could. They really could have steered into the political intrigue Game of Thrones of it all. I'm really glad they didn't do that for this particular story, but I, I love this movie. I actually kind of want to go watch it again right now. They didn't need to put Oscar Isaac naked, but they chose to do so. And for that, I'm very grateful. Very, very grateful. So our second nominee is Encanto, which was directed by Jared Bush. This was, of course, a Walt Disney Studios motion pictures production, one of their animated films. Have you seen Encanto, Lazi? I've seen Encanto approximately 50 do times. Do you have, have children? children? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. So I'll let you talk about your feelings about Encanto. Has has having children that want to watch it 50 times ruined your opinion of this movie? No, it's great. I love it. All of these films are great. I love Frozen. I love Frozen 2 as well. They're really good kids' movies, but they're just good movies to watch. The fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda did not get an Oscar for this because they nominated 100% the wrong song is, yes. is slightly crazy and hilarious. The soundtrack slaps. It's just a fun, fun, fun movie that is great to watch even 50 times. It's really interesting that it's a very fun kids movie, but it also has a lot of depth to it. Like there's a lot in this movie about familial trauma and the way that trauma is like handed down through different family members. There's a lot about familial expectations. Like there's just, there's some really, really wonderful stuff that is dealt with very well. And in a way that's not trite, that's not completely resolved by the end of the film, but it's resolved enough that it's not going to like scare a child, which is what happens when you have children's films that aren't resolved by the end of them usually. So it it is a really wonderful film. I love the animation, love the music. Sam, what did you think of Encanto? I'm answering my own question from a little while ago, but so I'm on the Hugo Awards website and looking at what qualifies a work to be nominated. And I finally found the genre bit. Uh, While the World Science Fiction Society sponsors the Hugos, they are not limited to science fiction. Works of fantasy or horror are eligible if the members of the Worldcon think they are eligible, which kind of covers, you know, some things are not sci-fi on this list. They're fantasy, fantastic, or This is definitely more fantastic. Right. So the last short story in the category, the... um, the, the one about the annotations, that's horror. 
Right. This is this is fantastic. I mean, it's it's got magic. Therefore, I it sticks out like a sore thumb in this category. Right. It's it's an outlier. It's not the most sore thumb for me in this category. I think it's absolutely a good film, but I, it just it sticks out to me as a as a nominee in this category that I'm like there wasn't anything else you, which I feel about another nominee in this category we'll get there but i'm looking at this going i I don't know this should win all the awards but this one i don't know sam why do you hate troy (laughs) i turned around back on you uh, (laughs) i deserve that Let's go to nominee three, which was a film that gave me a lot of joy, The Green Knight, which was written and directed by David Lowry. It's bold because, you know, Tess is the only person in our group of acquaintances that did like this movie. I don't think anybody else liked nobody it. Nobody liked it. I no, was just No, it brought me. you joy and then nobody else. Nobody else loved it. Uh, it was produced by A24, Lazzi. You watched this movie for the first time recently. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. We'll let you go first. So I found it is quite a slow burn. It's another Arthurian myth wrapped around, uh, which I enjoyed. I think as a reflection on arrogance, hubris, temptation, you know, if you want to talk about you don't have to go to the stars to learn about yourself, you you can go through a magical trip through the forest with some witches and the skull of a dead girl who was in the solo movie then you can do that here too. I have to say that I can't promise that if Alicia Vikander came into my room and started trying to seduce me that I wouldn't give in to that. So I feel like there was a bit of a harsh test on uh, our brave uh, Sigourain. <laughs> but, um, and also if Joel Edgerton gave me a snog from atop a horse, I wouldn't say no to that either. But um, uh, I found <laughs> Death Patel a, a very compelling, if kind of uh, the character I think is a little bit dull but that but i thought it was a very interesting compelling performance at the center of things yeah i mean like the, i i sent tessa this meme which had come around from taskmaster uh which is a, a fantastic british comedy panel show that if you haven't seen I, I thoroughly recommend but the the fundamental principle of the story is not a difficult one to understand you know you get a challenge you can strike a blow anywhere on the green night uh, in a year's time it will be paid back to you what do you do? So it's a te- it's clearly a test. It's a game at, at Christmas. It's a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie. It's a <laughs> double Christmas movie because it takes place at two Christmases. Arthur tells him a game and he runs in, whops his head off, and then has to deal with his arrogance and his hubris and his dread and his what it means to be honourable, what it means to be a knight. I really enjoyed it. Uh, again, it was a beautiful film. Again, it was built slowly built stunningly whether you whether you like the green knight as a look and feel i guess could probably divide people but for me um it was great to watch on a projector and 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 enjoy yeah we did see this one in the theater in an empty theater as you point out it does take place over two christmases so it really misses a trick to add a period appropriate rendition of last christmas at the end <laughs> I I chopped off your head and the very next Christmas it was you ambiguous. Off mine. Please don't chop off mine. There we go. 
<laughs> it writes itself, really. I gave you a good old. This film was, was it nominated for a BAFTA, Lazi? Do you remember? I think it was. I suspect it was. It was nominated for an Oscar, wasn't it? No, it, no, it was, was not. not. It was not. one of the big which Oscar is, Which is my point. Yeah. Is it was horribly snubbed. This is a, I mean, no offense to Encanto, but if you're, if you're lumping th- these things into three categories, which you shouldn't, this is a better film of the fantastic. And I would say, just as, you know, somebody who discussed what we actually voted on together, I think this is, this is the best film nominated and of the ones I've seen, which is all but Space Sweepers. And I think it's the only one that should win, except for possibly Space Sweepers, a Korean space western, which really sounds like it's perfect for this category, but I didn't see it. So my question is, how many people saw that movie? And based on the answer to that, I could tell you whether or not The Green Knight or Space Sweepers should win. But to me, it's no question. Green Knight is best of the four films and one long-form television show that we watched in this category. Now I'm done. <laughs> I loved The Green Knight. I it, Just like Dune, it's more of a vibe than it is really a plot. Have you taught Sir Gawain in The Green Knight? Do I look insane? Okay, I have taught Sir Gawain in The Green Knight several times. I am insane, but for reasons that do not concern this podcast. I thought it was really cool seeing the way that David Lowry deconstructs this tale while also telling it fairly faithfully to the adaptation up until the very end of the film, which the ending is a little bit different than it is in the original English epic. I thought it was just, it was a beautiful film. It ruminates on a lot of really interesting ideas. Alicia Vikander's speech on the color green just like is one of my absolute favorite monologues in the film and I'm not usually a monologue person I encourage I support Dev Patel's mission to remake British classics I mean with him in the titular role so I I'm a huge fan of this film as well let's talk about the next nominee Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings which was directed by Destin Daniel Cretton this is also Walt Disney Studios of course it is a Marvel film it's one of two Marvel entries here. Lazi, what did you think about this film and its inclusion on the list? So it's a fun film. Um, there's a lot of discourse around have Marvel lost their way in this phase of uh, their movies and their TV shows. And a lot of their TV and movies at the moment can be split into two things. One is the introduction of a new superhero. And the second is a rumination on grief. And sometimes the both uh, are, are, are true. This one is more of an introduction of a new character. I would say the first half an hour of this film, maybe even the first half of it, where there's an awful lot of Jackie Chan-like action movie stunts, and it looks great. And it's not stuff you've seen in a Marvel movie before. Uh, that's huge, huge amounts of fun to watch. Um, Simu Liu, um, who I've not seen anything before, but is fantastically charismatic. You've got Tony Leung, which is always to be praised. You've got Michelle Yeoh, who I worship, although she's very underused in in a way that makes you think that she's not going to be any more of them. Maybe she doesn't want to be in fair play to her. The the last act kind of descends a bit into boringness. It's It's just a little bit of a, it's not bad. It's fine. It doesn't 
meet the promise of the first half of the movie, I would say. I think it is fine that it is nominated, but it probably implies that the category was perhaps a little thin this year in terms of the potential nominations. If I think of the other Marvel movies, at least, that came out, which I guess were Black Widow. Was it 2021? So it would, yes. would have to be. So uh, It could have been The Eternals. Yeah, The Eternals is not as good as Shang-Chi. Bold choice. We just watched The Eternals yesterday for the second time. And we have collectively decided it is the best film of Phase 4, second only to this film. I agree with everything you just said, Lazi, especially the way that this film really embraces martial arts films. Like the, there are parts of this films that really draw on, especially the Hong Kong martial art films um, from that particular scene. And of course, like Michelle Yeoh is such a figure in that scene. So it, it makes sense for her to be in this film. This is Tony Leung's first American film. He really resisted doing American films, oh, but wow. decided this one was his first one. And the only reason he accepted it is because of the underlying theme of fathers and sons, because he has had a famously has talked about his difficult relationship with his father. So he wanted to really interrogate that in this particular film. Simi Liu uh, is from Kim's Convenience. I love that show. It is such a great Canadian half hour comedy. So it was really fun also seeing him cast in this as well. I, I agree with you about the third act. But it's still fun to watch, I think. I mean, from like just a Marvel context. I mean, you know, you can just skip me on the next two if you want, because I already told you (laughs) what I think about Space Sweepers, a film I didn't see. But I'm just so angry that WandaVision got nominated. And and, there yet. But but hold on. No, no, no. This is about Marvel. Because we're talking about Shang-Chi. We can swap around and and talk about WandaVision and then. But WandaVision, first of all, is a party foul because Loki is nominated in the short form. Make up your mind. Loki, one episode of Loki is nominated. Yeah, right, one episode. but that's the thing. Is what they're doing on Disney Plus six to 12-hour movies or television shows? Make up your mind. I think that Hugo should have called a party foul on that and said, you pick one. It's either a TV show or a long-form art form. From what you were saying, the, it, the nominations come from the people themselves, right? So it doesn't like that. It feels harsh to hold that against Marvel. I mean, I agree. I don't think one division. And when I said one thing sticks out more as a sore thumb, I don't think one division should be on this. But my my point here is, is that normally when you double nominate in a category, and in this case we're talking about a studio instead of an actor or well, it's usually an actor. They usually cancel each other out. Well, I don't think WandaVision should have, shouldn't have been here in the first place because of what I said in terms of a technical sense. It's also just so horribly... Well, my one-line review of it is it was anti-feminism all along, right? And, I mean, it's an insult of a show, right? It takes a character that both of you, I believe, have stronger opinions on than I do, strips it down and says, well, who cares, basically. So it shouldn't have been nominated for two good reasons, which leaves you with Shang-Chi, right, as the Marvel nominee of the year for this category, which makes sense. There should there's pretty much going to be one there. That makes sense. It's the wrong movie. It should be The Eternals. 
Oscar winner Chloe Zhao directed The Eternals. Right. And and I mean, again, after watching it yesterday. I don't care about that. Like, The Eternals as a movie it is more beautiful, but more boring. It does not have the anything like the kinetic energy that the bus fight scene does at the beginning of Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi is a lot like Encanto. In, like, in that I like both of them, but thinking about them in terms of this category, I will go back to Arrested Development and say, her? Well, and again, we're talking about a year with an awful lot of chaos around it. And I think you, I think you really hit the nail on the head with that. I think that's a, about as good of an explanation as I will get. Right, so Tenet came out in 2020, right, still? Oh, God. <laughs> I hated that film. Oh, I liked it. But regardless, what I mean is you're talking about films that came out in a year where the previous nine months of that year were all locked down, were all massively affecting the way that they were produced. And we're talking about that in terms of the TV shows as well. So yeah. it, to me, what, what you're saying is fair, but I think more reflective of the probably not just quality, but quantity of media that came out in long form that year. I believe Shang-Chi and WandaVision both were pushed back because of the pandemic. WandaVision certainly was, yeah. I know that one. I believe Shang-Chi was originally supposed to come out in 2020 or early 2021. I wanted to tell you, last year, for the record, the nominees in this category were The Old Guard, Birds of Prey, Soul, Palm Springs, Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> and Lazi, indeed, Tenet. The old guard won, by the way, which was correct, I'd say, okay. in my opinion. I like Tenet, but fine. Let's talk about WandaVision since we've already started talking about <laughs> it anyway. Lazi, what were your thoughts on WandaVision? This is an excellent TV show. <laughs> like, okay. I, I, so all of Sam's criticisms about it, I, I think, are fair and interesting. And I, I'd be interested in getting into that a little bit more. If you think about the concept of what they tried to do, which was to basically say, we're going to... And this is something Marvel does a lot, right? It, it picks a genre and then it says, we're going to make this film that genre. So one of these films is going to be the heist movie. One of them is going to be the sitcom movie. One of them is going to be the Hong Kong action movie. Or, or TV show, the the conceit of saying we're going to take a sitcom from each year, from each decade, and we're going to build an episode more or less around each one, and we're going to explore the story through that. And actually what we're going to do is explore grief through that. And whether or not you like what they did or the character they chose to do that to, and whether or not you think that's feminist or anti-feminist or not for me i think the concept was interesting the way that they got the theme tunes linked into it the way they did the set design the reflection and the attention to detail of how sitcoms and comedy evolved over the decades from the i love lucy stuff through the through to the modern family stuff which is i guess the the kind of the last one that they touched on was very enjoyable for me. Catherine Hahn stole the show. And, Absolutely. 
uh, and the Agatha all along uh, reveal and song was I was, you know, was absolutely an, a moment on the internet that everyone was talking about. If you want to talk about one moment that, that people were talking about more than anything else, the Agatha all along moment from WandaVision was talked about more than anything else on this list. Do I think this should win? No, I don't. Do I think the ending of it has a, has problems? Absolutely, I do. Do I think that trying to make a ship of thesis argument between two vi- different versions of the vision was interesting? No, I do not. Do I think that <laughs> this was a betrayal of a character? No, I don't, because Wanda has always been like this in the comics. But I can see why other people do, and I you know, if you're particularly invested in Wanda, I can see why you think it's a betrayal. And see, like, here's the thing. I kind of agree with both of you because I am so immersed in Wanda in the comics, which has not always been the most feminist representation of the character. But I kind of, like, knew she was going to become an antagonist eventually. Like, that's definitely been a through line that the MCU had been building for a while. And so when this show ended and people were like, oh, she did all these horrible things and got away with it, I was like, no, she's going to be an antagonist now. And I think that seeing Doctor Strange especially really kind of redeems the ending of WandaVision because we're not trying to present her as a hero anymore. Like she has become like a straight up villain. And I think that was maybe more interesting for us who had read the comics than perhaps viewers who hadn't who are more confused about what was going on at the end of that right and you shouldn't have to read the comics to get that right like that that, that, that's not not, that is you know i and and god forbid we gatekeep on this elizabeth olsen herself has always said the cat the story she wants to tell most about wonder is house of m and house of m is absolutely a wonder goes crazy and then is later retconned to take away her agency even more which is not good do I think the way they've transitioned Wanda to a villain and then back again was deftly handled? I mean, no. We're going to talk about something in a second that's even less deftly handled. But I mean, if you if you think Marvel is best described as deft handlers <laughs> of anything, boner. Yeah, that was. Sam is very much down on the boner, as, as she should be, as she should be. That was that was such a potential great thing that they then made rubbish for no. I don't know why they didn't just say actually he is that character. It was weird, and there was there was it was a really interesting show to be online for because there was so much speculation about it. It, it was the first Marvel show on Disney Plus out the gate, right? There was so much Mephisto chat, which was obviously tedious. Horrible. <laughs> Sam is so fed up with it that she's departed the scene. So but I do think it was I do think that there's something to be said for the 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 Agatha all along reveal was very, very good. The um all of the music in it was fantastic. The ending was a bit meh. It shouldn't really be in this category. Let's talk about the last nominee in this category, Space Sweepers, which Sam and I have not seen, directed by Joe Sung-hee by Biden Jill Pictures. Lazi, you have seen this. Do you want to give us a short run through? Yeah, so Space Sweepers is about, 
it's a science fiction film set in the near-ish future where Earth is mining asteroids and has a bunch of space stations that they bring things back to. There is uh, inequality that's resulted from that. There is different levels of citizenship attached to different aspects of things. There is environmentalist impacts. The most interesting thing about this film is that there is a completely diverse cast in terms of from multiple different nations. So Korean is is the primary, but you've got Brazilians, you've got Americans, you've got French people, you've got people from all over the, uh, over the world, all speaking their own language in the film. So they're they're all they've all got their their sort of subtitles, but the film that, or at least the version I saw of it, they're all speaking different languages to each other, which is a really interesting experience to watch and see, and obviously something you wouldn't get from an American studio. It's fun. It's like being hit over and over in the face by a sledgehammer with its message about capitalism, bad, environmentalism, <laughs> good, etc. Which is not things that I disagree with, but it was like it was so the villain is so scenery chewing. Like so like to the point of do you remember Paul Bettany's vi- villain in um solo where he sort of started turning red when he's yeah. angry? It's kind of that level of of scenery chewing villainy i want to build a new it's a bond level like um uh what's the moonraker level bond villain sort of a world vision as well so it's yeah it's fun uh, i recommend watching it you know for for the diversity and for for the fun aspect but it's yeah it's nowhere near the likes of june or the green knight in this category the idea of having different nationalities different people speaking their own languages is interesting to me have you seen the japanese film drive my car which was nominated for best foreign film i have not or best international film it kind of has a similar premise because it is a japanese film but one of the characters is a a stage director who is directing a play in which he's hiring actors from different nationalities and they're all speaking in their their own languages as well including um, someone who's speaking in sign language korean sign language specifically so i i just find that fascinating as well anytime you you have something like that i think it's very interesting i mean the, the other big thing i'll give give it for which is is a trope but it's one of my favorite tropes and it's something that'll come up on the short film as well is it does have a big found family aspect it has a big group of people who've come together who didn't really have much in common have to fight for a common goal and and i'm always a sucker for that so i i enjoyed watching it on a coach in norway uh on a tablet it was a good movie for that i would say so which which films do we think is gonna win i mean i want green the green knight to win but i have a feeling it might be dune just because of the way that people have all seen this film they're definitely the two standouts for me. I would I would actually put Encanto third. I think WandaVision I enjoyed WandaVision, I think clearly more than Sam did. But <laughs> I I agree that I don't think it's a appropriate category for it because you don't watch it all in one go. It's not a seamless thing. Even if even if you made a film out of it, it wouldn't be that. It's not a single experience. So to me it's it should be out. Shang-Chi is fine and then descends in ways that a lot of Marvel movies do. Space Sweepers is funny but incidental. 
just on the basis that the Green Knight tells a complete story, I would agree and I would pick that over Dune. But I really enjoyed Dune as well. And I think that, you know, some of the performances that you get in Dune are... Dune is a much more ensemble piece and it's a much broader scope. Green Knight is more claustrophobic in a fun way, uh, in a way that's good. So they're beautiful in different ways. Knowing that the Old Guard won last year, this is Dune with possible Green Knight coming in second. Okay. So you think Dune will win? I do. Okay. I think that's a pretty, that's probably the safe guess, but I'm really rooting for the Green Knight. All right, Sam, Hi. in our next category, this is all you. I have not read all any right. of the, the Lodestar Award for Best Young Adult Book, so take it away, Sam. All right, here we go. First of all, the Lodestar Award for Best Young Adult Book is not a Hugo. It is presented at the Hugos. I did not know that. Well, now you do. So one of the things that's very interesting about this category is that one, two, three, four of them are sequels. Do I find that problematic? Yes. Do I find that emblematic of the young adult genre? Which again, not a genre. Yes. Let me run these down for you as we trip from hour two into hour three, possibly. Number one, Chaos on Catnet by Naomi Kritzer. This is a sequel. Of the sequels, this may be the one that is least dependent on its predecessor. I have not read the first book in the Catnet series, Catfishing on Catnet. It did win the award in 2019. Oh, okay. The The first book is handily summarized in a way that didn't feel false. So basically what this is, is this is about a messaging service, a community service on an app where people get together and talk about stuff. One of the participants in the chat who may also own the app is an AI called the Cheshire Cat. And it is, it is, it's like data. It is an artificial intelligence that is trying to be as human as possible. So from the Star Trek, the next generation. How many other data do you know? Well, I don't know how familiar our listeners are with Star Trek, the next generation. The concept of data. (laughs) In the second book, the main conflict of the plot. So our main POV character is, is Steph. And after the events of catfishing on Catnet has been able to finally settle in Minneapolis, where she meets Nell, who is a recent escapee from a religious cult. And these two befriend each other and join a, another app that has, them, that has elves asking them to do seemingly random tasks. Nell also has used a similar app that asks her to do random tasks, but it is built into the religious cult as well as, you know, far-right extremist religion in general. And the crux of the book is who are running these apps? What's happening? And so it's a really interesting collision between AI consciousness of and these these doomsday cults. It's different, man. It was good. It was good. I don't know if I'll go back to read catfishing because I don't know that I need to. But it was interesting. I, I enjoyed it. Just to 
put a like brief pause here. Do we think that you mentioned that you think it's problematic that so many of these are sequels or parts of series. And we saw that in the graphic story and comic section. Do you think that that causes somewhat the Hugos to be inaccessible to anyone who like wants to read some of these books? Maybe, maybe not. The fact of the matter is, so Redemptor that is on this list, Ray Bearer, its predecessor, was nominated last year. Victories Greater Than Death by Charlie Jane Anders. If you read The Hugos, you are already reading Charlie Jane Anders. So the fact that her second book is nominated wouldn't matter because you probably already read the first one. The Last Graduate was also nominated. Its first book was nominated. Well, Naomi Novik won a Hugo before as well, didn't she? Yes. Or Nebula, I can't remember. Yeah, she's written many novels. So the point of the thing is, like, if you're coming in, this is like it's like a couple of things, but one of the things it reminds me of is watching a soap opera. You cannot go back to the beginning, and nobody is going to stop for you. So hop on, spend <laughs> enough episodes watching, and you'll figure it out. So the thing about it is, is like, it may be inaccessible, but it's not inaccessible by design. It just is. It just is. And if you want to be part of it, you are welcomed in with the caveat that you are joining something that is already in progress and it is incumbent upon you to do that or not because your vote is one person's vote. So if you don't want to read the series and vote for something like Iron Widow in this category, you could. Do you think that this causes the same people to be nominated year after year? That I do. I do think that there is... And I'm not saying it's bad because I'm not saying these authors aren't worthy. I mean, it might be, but I don't know. I'm not qualified enough to say that, whether it is or not. But I do think it is problematic. And part of it is is a bigger issue with young adult literature, which is a publishing convention. I slip up and say genre like everybody does, but it's like messing up somebody's pronouns. I do it all the time. And I'm sorry when it happens. But young adult literature is a publishing convention. And so basically we're voting on a group of books that are lumped together because of their perceived reading audience, which is you're about to see is kind of a wild concept. Right. But, but this is also a bigger reflection of media, right? It's not just specific to this area. If, if we look at the, let's just look at back at our, um, our long form, right? Dune based on a book from 40, 50 years ago. Encanto is pretty original. So Maybe it should be higher up. The Green Knight based on a, uh, I think this was a book in the 1970s. No, okay. A bit longer, a bit older than that. <laughs> Shang-Chi based on, uh, adapted and then written as a new story, but based on comics. Space Reapers is, I think, relatively original, although if someone told me it was based on a manga, I would believe them. WandaVision, obviously, um, based on some Tom King comics and, and, and again, a new story, but very much drawing from that. Even if we look back at the at those comics, you know, you've got Die, which is volume four. Far Sector is original. Lore Olympus is based on Greek mythology. Monstrous volume six. Once of Future volume three. Strange Adventures is relatively original. So it's kind of like the the thing that everyone complains about in movies and in, in other media is just also being reflected here. And 
that's for it's still frustrating it still doesn't change the frustration of wanting there to be more space for new fiction and particularly in awards and maybe that there are things that could be done with award shows to limit legacy ip based things or enforcing greater space for for novel fiction i don't know but uh, but i don't it feels like it's not specifically a criticism for young adult not genre or uh, or uh, or the Hugo's or the Lone Stars. So I I don't disagree with any of that. And to say one last thing about chaos on Catnet, both Steph and Nell are lesbians, not with each other. So there are multiple gay characters in this book, which also definitely interacts with the religious cult aspect. Moving on. The second book on our list is the one that will run away with the award. I am fairly Absolutely. certain. I don't even have to have read these without knowing that this is I know no, I have I'm... heard of this book because I've seen it advertised on TikTok. The book that somebody told you about because they sell it on BookTok, Iron Widow by Shirin J. Zhao. The horniest goddamn YA book ever. <laughs> it's like Pacific Rim, but they fuck. <laughs> Wait, wait, the, the massive monsters and machines film? Not the kaiju. They... Not, not That's the a kaiju. shame. The, the people that feels the like there's an opportunity to miss there. If you like your sex romance polyamorous, you should read this book written for young adults, as I blink with incredulity. Oh, man. And the best part is the author's note at the end, apparently this is the PG-13 version? <laughs> There was a first version that was an I don't know. But but man, this person had to have some stories on AO3 back in the day. This, oh boy. I don't know if I like this book or not. So, I mean, famously, I am getting into the romance genre, but I actually skip the, the stuff because I don't care. Uh, I just, I don't know what to tell you. But... This book is set in a version of China that is an alternative universe, question mark, uh, post-apocalyptic. There are answers at the end of this novel. It is going to be the first in a series, presumably. So I won't spoil that. But basically, you know how like a rift in the universe or whatever opened up and the that's how Pacific Rim happens? This is like that except the call is coming from inside the house. These are the kaiju are fighting monstrous forms that are part of the planet proper. They don't just come through like a wormhole. This sounds like a Final Fantasy game. War Godzilla. Yeah. Well, and so the other big thing about this book that is really interesting is anybody who's critical of Chinese human rights are well aware of the following two things that I'm going to say. This is a society in which only male children are preferred because it does take two beings to power this version of kaiju but the male is always going to be the the dominant of the two there are reasons for this and they come out in the book but basically women are only good for two things to be the subservient in the in the mecca or to be the subservient in the marriage and to that, the protagonist of this story has her feet bound. So if you know about that, that is described in some detail to lay it out there for kids. And I got to tell you, it's, it's, 
All of this is great. All of this is great. It's a shame so many people will not be able to read it because of how genuinely graphic it is with its sex depictions. I don't have a problem with them as is. I know that in the current moment, this book has a lot to say about disability, about queerness, about who should be able to do what based on what gender they're, or sex they're born as, but a lot of people are never going to see it. Well, and I, this may, the way you said this, how there used to be an R rated version and it's the PG 13 rated version, it makes me think that maybe she originally wrote it as an adult novel. And then because it's easier to get published as a YA book, she edited it down. Perhaps. And that I think is a, that's more of a condemnation of the publishing industry than anything else. I think one of the ways to sum up this book is if you have ever read, pretty much any YA romance, but any book where a love triangle should have Tessa's favorite solution (laughs) is that it's not a, it's not a triangle. It's a thruple. Well, guys, this is your book. I mean, you've sold me on this book. And, And that is a spoiler that comes relatively late, but that realization that that's what it is comes very early. And then I was shocked to see it go and I was like, well, this book's going to get censored all the way to hell. And and then it was like, well, I guess if she knows it's going to be censored at this point, we might as well. I guess the question is, is she writing purely for an English language audience? Is she writing for, are there other translations? Like, what, what's what's the goal there? Because And by the way, I, I'm going to stop right here and say, if you recall what I said a minute ago about pronouns, I am very sorry. Fear and Jay Zhao uses they them oh, pronouns uh, my so, apologies as well then there you go i haven't met a set of pronouns i haven't been able to mess up including notably my own <laughs> yes have i misgendered myself in case you wondered if that was possible the answer is yes <laughs> it's interesting your point about about queerness and about disability and about a chinese background because it does feel like this is a piece with monstrous in that case so i i just i'll i'll close this and move on just by saying this is this is complicated this book is somehow fast-paced and action-oriented but goes pretty deep on the other things and that's impressive i mean overall i i enjoyed the book and i think it's good i just i have reservations about it in its current moment am i gonna read the next one yeah anyway Okay, so moving on, another book in a series. I guess technically Five and Widows, the first in a series, all but one of these is in a series. The Last Graduate by Naomi uh, Novik, as Lazi has said, an author who is not a stranger to the Hugos. This is a second book in another series. The first book, The Last Graduate, was also nominated. This is, again, book two in the Scholomance series, which if you look up Scholomance, which is apparently a real term. I did not know that. It is essentially, what it boils down to is it is a academic institution revolving around black magic in Romania that is run by the devil himself. That is pretty much on brand with what this book is. (laughs) This book gives you a very brief recounting of the end of the first book. You will not understand what's happening if you don't go to the internet and get yourself a primer, which I did. This is dark magic Harry Potter. 
presumably less transphobic. But shorthand, that's what it is. Imagine a world in which your wizard, Harry, means it's time to go learn how to use dark magic and just mess people up. You will probably die while you are at this school. And if you don't die in the school, you'll probably die after graduation in which you try to get out. You only have what you can learn about dark magic to help you. And I know what you're thinking. I've read Harry Potter. I bet there's a really wacky group of instructors. Well, you're wrong. And I know what you're thinking. If you've read The Magicians, you're thinking there's probably a sadomasochistic, wacky group of instructors. Well, you'd be wrong. There are no instructors. Basically, you go to this school so that this is... this is a Hunger Games, but school situation. This is a school that's in like a pocket dimension void. It is infested and constantly breeding evil monsters. While you are learning how to combat the evil monsters, Tessa, attacks can come from any direction at any time. That is my motto. And, and to top it off, you have a finite supply of magic that you must refill yourself through a handful of means. So even if you learn how to not die, you have to make sure you're powered up enough to not die. If this sounds like a fun series to you, you should probably read it. I have <laughs> only read up to the end of the excerpt that uh, the uh, Chaikon provided to us, which is about 170 pages in. I will finish it. I it, It's interesting. It's an interesting story you know, if you're not burnt out on the magical school thing. This is a newish take on it, so I'm I'm entertained. Are there, is the protagonist a scrappy urchin found on the streets? She is scrappy. I know to the urchin. However, there is very much a class system yeah. of haves and have-nots. And she most certainly have not. has not. And, and her is-he-is-he-not boyfriend is super magical powered. So, hello, Twilight. I've missed you. <laughs> Next up. We have another sequel, the sequel to 2021's nominated novel, Ray Bearer, by Jordan Ifueko. I tried to read Ray Bearer last year. I was recovering from surgery at the time. I was either going to teach Ray Bearer or Legendborn. I read one chapter of Ray Bearer and said I'd come back to it. It wasn't vibing with me that day. I was in a lot of pain. I did not have... Legendborn grabbed me, pulled me in, and didn't let me go. I loved it. I taught it. When I saw that Redemptor was nominated, I was like, I have to go back and read Ray Bearer first because I don't care how much of Ray Bearer I need. I wanted to read it, so I'm going to read it first. Ray Bearer, it's fun. It's good. It's well-written. It's an original story. Ifueko is a Nigerian writer. Redemptor, I am close to halfway through. And I am sorry to report it is not as good yet. So, uh, Ifueko, who is of uh, Nigerian descent, I should say, Nigerian-American, writes about an alternate world, another version of our world, in which... Uh, so this is, this is actually a little similar to Akorafor's Akata series, right? This, is, this yeah. is an alternate version, but this is more of a fantastic. It's not a could-be-our-world. It is a different imagining of our world and basically what it is is the the ray bearer is the supreme governing power over this 
area that basically is as I would understand it, Nigeria. And in this world, the Ray Bearer makes this fantastic magical connection with a handpicked selection of other people. They all fall in love, and now the Emperor's immortal. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> Our main character is bred to be the person who will murder the Ray Bearer for reasons, secret reasons. And I love so, a good secret reason. Secret plot. reasons. So the the daughter of the person with the secret reasons and the father of a magical jinn-esque creature goes and like Manchurian candidate style goes in to become one of those ray chosen in love people. Hijinks ensue. There's so much more going on in the story. <laughs> It's like, hard to explain like, a sequel, I feel like, to something like so, that. So, yeah, the, this, well, the sequel is all of what I've just said is resolved. Now what's next? It is an expansion of the world building. And as we know, that is where second novels in a series slump, is when you have a great premise, you resolve the premise, and then you continue. So that's, that's that. Absolutely. A Snake Falls to Earth by Darcy Little Badger, indigenous author. I did not read. Hugo voters are usually provided with most of the material. I ran out of time. I didn't read the one I wasn't provided. Fair. I will say that Darcy Little Badger was nominated in this category last year. I have seen her speak. Thumbs up. Yeah, she's she's a wonderful author. Do I think she'll win? No. Would that change if I had read the book? Probably not. I'm going to. I'm also going to read last year's. So moving on, lastly, to Victories Greater Than Death, a book that I am writing about in my book. Charlie Jane Anders is a person, an author, a Hugo winner for her short fiction and podcasting, has written nonfiction, short stories, novels. She is many, many things. And far down the list, it should be noted, a trans woman. So a role model for many of us as somebody who is able to live out and be successful. That is somebody that as much as you don't want to play identity politics, as much as you don't want to, but as much as you don't want to elevate somebody because of what they are rather than who they are, this is somebody that I can't help but elevate because she is somebody that so many people would like to see themselves in. And that's what victories greater than death and its predecessor dreams bigger than heartbreak are about. They are about being the person that you see in yourself. And Charlie Jane Anders is all about creating fictional characters that you perhaps could see yourself in as a way toward that goal. This is about a, a main character named Tina, who's your average ordinary girl, except she is the respawned human version of a great space general. And she finds this out. And I'm sorry, this is what Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak is about. Okay. She finds out about that. She tells her friend Rachel, who is neuroatypical and an artist, and is the only one who would actually believe her and does. In Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak, they, because this is absolutely what was happening, they find their way in space. Tina is dealing with the idea that she is a rebirth of someone else and that the goal is for her to become that someone else rather than stay Tina. And that's the conflict of the first book. 
There are several other diverse characters, as I said, in this series. One of the big ones is a character named Elsa or Elle, who is herself a trans girl. And these are the three main characters of the second book. What Charlie Jane Anders does in Victories Greater Than Death is expands the POV to all three of these characters, not just the main character for the first book who's dealing with this issue, but we get the POV of a trans girl written by a trans woman. This is what my my chapter in my book about this issue is about. It is about what the state of trans YA protagonist is currently, and Charlie Jane Anders is, is to borrow a Southernism, doing God's work. And I love this character. I love Elle. I love the paradigm of, uh, I believe it's transvestite, which is which is a real word that exists that basically means it is it is meant to imply a trans person and an aberration at the same time and it's about owning that language knowing who you are knowing that if you were kicked out of your home and found a place where you were going to be accepted but then you weren't because in Elle's case she was too good at coding for a woman so you either need to shut up because you're a girl or you're not a real girl. Either way, GTFO. It, this is a character who in the second novel is able to, we're able to see her point of view, but we're also able to see her figure out who she is without anybody telling her what they think. And and Rachel's story is also really good. It's somebody learning how to, her her art for plot reasons is taken away from her. She is not able to do art through the majority of the second book. And so how a neuroatypical person is used to expressing themselves, if that was taken away from them, how do you recover? How do you live? How do you continue to be who you are and maintain the relationships that you want to have? This is the book that ought to win. It's not going to. It's the one we voted. But, okay, that's it. That's my that's my Lodestar Roundup. Hooray! So just to reiterate, Iron Widow, probably going to win, but you are rooting for victories greater than death. And I'll also point out, I will finish Redemptor as well. These are not DNFs. These are books that I just ran out of time for, so I'm telling you what I can. Fair enough. All right, so we are moving on to the category of best novelette, which is not something I knew a lot about before we started reading these. We're going to try to get through this category fairly quickly, especially since these are some pretty short pieces of fiction. Is it a short story? Is it a novella? It might be a novelette. (laughs) So first up, we have Bots of the Lost Ark by Suzanne Palmer. This was published in Clark's World in 2021. So this particular story is the second in a series. There was a previous novelette, and it involves basically the same characters. So... This is about a spaceship that has a crew that is in stasis. They approach the territory of an unwelcoming alien race, and they realize that a previous AI who had dealt with this in the last story needed to be reactivated so they could deal with the infestation of aliens in their ship. Bot hijinks. In space! Yeah, this is kind of a buddy comedy between ship and bot nine. Very good. 
All right, next <laughs> next nominee is Colors of the Immortal Palette by Caroline M. Joachim, published in Uncanny Magazine. I have not read this one. Sam, what is it about? Art Vampires. Ooh. I want to read it now. You know that you know that Halsey song? Which one? It's blue. Colors. Yeah. Like that, but a short story about vampires who do art. All right. Good. Bad. Not blood vampires. Art vampires. It was good. It's all right. Okay. All right. L'Esprit de l'Escalier. By Catherine M. Valente. It was published on Tor.com. Multiple nominee. This is a retelling of the Greek myth Orpheus and Eurydice. It is about a married couple who one of them dies and the other successfully rescues her from Hades only to discover that she is still dead and does not belong on Earth. This is a pretty good one. It's the most literary, I think, out of all of the nominees Mm. we've talked about so far. I mean, we had vampires, so I'm pretty sure it's a law that you have to have zombies too. So, (laughs) hooray, we did it. This one's definitely about death and grief, which is a... (laughs) ongoing theme i think in these next up we have o2 arena it appeared in galaxy's edge sam you want to summarize this one well first i want to tell you that ekpeki was also nominated for editing as well as for this story and was denied a visa from nigeria to go to chicago despite the fact that he is a known person despite the fact that he was able via gofundme to completely fund the trip as he tells it he was unable to travel because he was not going to school and he didn't have family already there and so he he believes he believes through his own retelling which may be nominated for a hugo next year you laugh but that's what happens in the related work category more often than not he claims that they think that if you don't have a reason to go, you're going to run away and not come back to hide. And his point was, I am literally nominated for an award. That is the opposite of trying to hide. I think you missed out one key word or key phrase in that, which is, if you're black. I left that out of this story right now. Believe me, Ekpeki did not. I just wanted to bring that up here because even, even these Hugos are very political. This is about a world in which oxygen is a scarce resource. In other words, it is set about 20 years in the future. (laughs) and a That's bitter laughter for those of you who aren't paying attention. Yes. And so the protagonist is met with an impossible choice. Do something that is repugnant or watch someone he loves die. It was okay. It was all right. Okay. I I want him to win just to stick it to... (laughs) You know. The next nominee is That Story Isn't the Story by John Wiswell, published in Uncanny Magazine. This is a story about a man belonging to a cult that's run by the abusive and controlling Mr. Bird until his old friend arrives to rescue him. And he is rescued, but he is afraid that the cult leader has sent dark magic in his direction to punish him from leaving the cult. This is ostensibly a horror story. And it is ostensibly that way on purpose. The author's aim here is to subvert that and say, I know what you think is going to happen. I'm not going to let it. I'm going to do something else instead 
to really force you to think about what escaping from a cult really means, what it would really entail. So I, I think it's a really interesting story. I, I think it's probably better than the art vampire story and the zombie story and the bots in space story, I guess, for that matter. <laughs> Absolutely. And our last nominee in this category is Unseely Brothers Limited by Fran Wilde from Uncanny Magazine. This one was pretty good, too. It was the one that I read last. I'm pretty sure that story isn't the story might be my favorite. But this is clothing shop shenanigans. Imagine. Imagine if you will. This is could be a Twilight Zone episode. Imagine if you will. A clothing shop that shows up only at one time a year, but always in a different place, and only admits select people. What happens when our young protagonist comes in and challenges the status quo? Hashtag feminism. <laughs> I like we got a hashtag at the end. It was good. It was good. good. I, I, think, I think the last two were my favorites. Yeah, I definitely think, I did not read most of these, but just kind of knowing what they're looking for, that story isn't the story, is probably a lead to win. However, the Orpheus, Orpheus Eurydice story is also, I think just from like a literary perspective, I could see voters skewing that way as well. And that is where we'll end the discussion for now. Join us tomorrow, Wednesday, for our conclusion of the discussion of the 2022 Hugo Awards, where we'll be discussing Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form, Best Novella, and Best Novel. You can find Lazi at Mean Englishman on Twitter and Sam at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we've talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.